now. Last time on Flying Sidecar. Katniss Everdeen, survivor of the Hunger Games, this dystopian uh, 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 tool of power and oppression by the capital over the 12 existing districts. Well, Katniss suddenly finds herself a survivor of two Hunger Games and off in District 13, a district that the rest of the districts thought had been sort of blown out of existence, but turns out they are alive, they are well-ish, and they are working to undermine the capital. Katniss has agreed to become the Mockingjay, not just to be labeled the Mockingjay, but actually to take on this mantle. And what that means is, well, Katniss is once again working up to other people's expectations. Now, last week we read technically chapters eight and nine, but that's an editing thing. If you're hearing this in the future, don't worry about that. Uh, we'll do review for chapters seven, eight, and nine. Chapter seven, we land in uh, we landed District Eight. There is a uh, a little warehouse that's been converted into a hospital. Katniss lands there and makes her first appearance as the Mockingjay after taking on this role, and that's when the Capitol bombers roll back through. For a second time that day, the hospital gets bombed, and Katniss, after fighting back, after she and Gale bring down a couple of planes, Katniss, speaking directly into the camera crews that have been uh, assigned to her for exactly this purpose, to catch Katniss at her at her improvisational, at her most genuine, at her most off-scriptedness, Katniss looks into the camera and says, look at what they do. This is why we are fighting. If you think that the Capitol is going to honor a ceasefire, look at what happened here. They just bombed a hospital full of unarmed people. We took some of their bombers down, and I can promise you, and here's the big line from this speech, if we burn, you burn with us. Because this is what the Capitol's trying to do. They're trying to burn everything. They're trying to burn out every part of the rebellion, but at this point, the rebellion, the rebellion is the will of the people here. <laughs> In chapter eight, Katniss gets evacuated. They, they make it back to District 13 relatively safely. Uh, Katniss is banged up, kind of bloody, um, but survived. Now, as they are broadcasting this thing, um, these these propos, these things designed designed to inspire the other rebels, like okay, Katniss Everdeen still around, still still fighting, still fighting pretty hard, taking down bombers. Okay, maybe we can do this. We get a response from the capital. Now, this is in the midst of. Um, you know, Katniss trying to, once again, get used to things at the, uh, uh, in District 13, get used to this different crew of people who, yeah, they're, it's a different group of people than had expectations of her during the Hunger Games, but still, they've got expectations, she has to live up to these things, uh, in various ways, so her life is not easy. As a matter of fact, it's gotten very, very difficult. She thinks about PETA constantly, um, and especially after the more recent revelation that PETA is not doing well. She's back to kind of her old, back to her old challenge, her old trauma of looking around and thinking, every time I try to do something right, somebody I care about gets hurt. 
Haymitch is furious with Katniss for uh, going so far off of the off of the plan uh, in District 8 and actually fighting back. She was supposed to just evacuate because if something happens to her, that is going to be an enormous blow to the morale of the rebellion. He's furious that she sort of uh, took out her earpiece and she promises she'll do the darn thing. But uh, Peta is back. Peter's back. We know this from the uh, from the videos that they send out. And as of our final chapter from last week, chapter nine, Katniss is Katniss is struggling with something. And this is that Peter, on his most recent video, said, "Do you really know the people that you're working with or working for? If not, find out." Well, they kind of screw it up pretty quickly because. She sort of saw this message from, from PETA. It was broadcast all over the, the country, but um, she saw this unexpectedly. Um, and she kept it a secret from people that she knew PETA was in bad shape. PETA was clearly struggling. They were doing bad things to PETA. And nobody tells her. They're keeping this from her, which does not encourage Katniss to feel great about them. As we get on into uh, the last bits of last week, the the camera crew that accompanies Katniss, um, they head on into District 12 once again. This is for the second time. And Katniss connects with Castor and Pollux, um, the, the actual cameramen of this little team. Uh, one of them is an Avox, and Katniss starts to realize why they are so willing to run into explosions and smoke with her uh, if it means bringing down the capital. Katniss sings the Hanging Tree song, which, y'all, I've sung quite a bit on this channel, I would say all told, considering what sort of channel this is dedicated to reading. Um, I would say I've sung quite a bit, and I think that might have been one of my worst ones. <laughs> the hanging tree might not have been my absolute best, but hey, what are you gonna do? Uh, you gotta you gotta have some rough ones every once in a while. It's just unfortunate because I've had some really great ones of like dwarves who are not maybe naturally great singers. Th these particular dwarves, uh, and then we get in here with Katniss, who's supposed to like make all the birds stop singing in the trees when she sings, and then what can you do? the very end of last week, which is the end of part one, and now we are going to be beginning part two, the assault, but at the end of part one, Katniss is once again on the television as District 13 hijacks the communication system and broadcasts these propo messages with Katniss, uh, these messages of hope and determination for the, for the rebellion, broadcast them all over the districts, including the capital. They catch the middle of a an interview with Peta, and during this interview, Cat uh, Peta is insisting, demanding uh, a I mean a, a ceasefire. He asks Katniss, "How will this end? What do you think is going to happen? No one's safe, not in the capital, not in the districts, and you in thirteen, dead by morning. The last thing we see." as the camera cuts to black in the capital, is Peter's blood hitting the tiles.
Part 2, The Assault, Chapter 10. The scream begins in my lower back and works its way up through my body, only to jam in my throat. I am Avox mute, choking on my grief. Even if I could release the muscles in my neck, let the sound tear into space, would anyone notice it? The room's in an uproar. Questions and demands ring out as they try to decipher Peter's words. And you, in thirteen, dead by morning. And yet no one is asking about the messenger whose blood has been replaced by static. A voice calls the others to attention. Shut up! Every pair of eyes falls on Hamish. It's not some big mystery. The boy's telling us that we're about to be attacked. Here, in 13. How would he have that information? Why should we trust him? How do you know? Hamish gives a growl of frustration. They're beating him bloody while we speak. What more do you need? Katniss, help me out here. I have to give myself a shake to free my words. Hamish is right. I don't know where Peter got the information, or if it's true, but he believes it is. And there... I can't say aloud what Snow is doing to him. You don't know him, Hamish says to Coin. We do. Get your people ready. The president doesn't seem alarmed, only somewhat perplexed by this turn of events. Hmm. She mulls over the words, tapping one finger lightly on the rim of the control board in front of her. When she speaks, she addresses Hamish in an even voice. Of course, we've prepared for such a scenario, although we have decades of support for the assumption that further direct attacks on 13 would be counterproductive to the capital's cause. Nuclear missiles would release radiation into the atmosphere with incalculable environmental results. Even routine bombing could badly damage our military compound, which we know they hope to regain. And, of course, they invite a counterstrike. It is conceivable that, given our current alliance with the rebels, those would be viewed as acceptable risks. Do you think so? says Hamish. It's a shade too sincere, but the subtleties of irony are often wasted in 13. I do. At any rate, we're overdue for a level 5 security drill, says Coin. Let's proceed with the lockdown. She begins to type rapidly on her keyboard, authorizing her decision. The moment she raises her head, it begins. There have been two low-level drills since I arrived in 13. I don't remember much about the first. I was in intensive care in the hospital, and I think the patients were exempted, as the complications of removing us for a practice drill outweighed the benefits. I was vaguely aware of a mechanical voice instructing people to congregate in yellow zones. During the second, a level two drill meant for minor crises, such as a temporary quarantine while citizens were tested for contagion during a flu outbreak. We were supposed to return to our living quarters. I stayed behind a pipe in the laundry room, ignoring the pulsating beeps coming from over the audio system, and watched a spider construct a web. Neither experience has prepared me for the wordless, eardrum-piercing, fear-inducing sirens that now permeate 13. There would be no disregarding this sound, which seems designed to throw the whole population into a frenzy. But this is 13, and that doesn't happen. 
Boggs guides Finnick and me out of command, along the hall to a doorway and into a wide stairway. Streams of people are converging to form a river that flows only downward. No one shrieks or tries to push ahead. Even the children don't resist. We descend, flight after flight, speechless because no word could be heard above this sound. I look for my mother and Prim, but it's impossible to see anyone but those immediately around me. They're both working in the hospital tonight, though, so there's no way they can miss the drill. My ears pop and my eyes feel heavy. We're coal mine deep. The only plus is that the further we retreat into the earth, the less shrill the sirens become. It's as if they were meant to physically drive us away from the surface, which I suppose they are. Groups of people begin to peel off into marked doorways, and still Boggs directs me downward, until finally the stairs end at the edge of an enormous cavern. I start to walk straight in, and Boggs stops me, shows me that I must wave my schedule in front of the scanner so I'm accounted for. No doubt the information's going to some computer somewhere to make sure no one's gone astray. The place seems unable to decide if it's natural or man-made. Certain areas of the walls are stone, while steel beams and concrete heavily reinforce others. Sleeping bunks are hewn right into the rock walls. There's a kitchen, bathrooms, a first aid station. This place was designed for an extended stay. White signs with letters or numbers are placed at intervals around the cavern. As Boggs tells Finnick and me to report to the area that matches our assigned quarters, in my case, E for compartment E, Plutarch strolls up. Um, there you are, he says. Recent events have had little effect on Plutarch's mood. He still has a happy glow from Beatty's success in the airtime assault. Eyes on the forests, not the trees. Not on Peta's punishment or Thirteen's imminent blasting. Katniss, obviously this is a bad moment for you, what with Peta's setback. But you need to be aware that others will be watching you. What? I say. I can't believe he actually just downgraded Peta's dire circumstances to a setback. The other people in the bunker, they'll be taking their cue on how to react from you. If you're calm and brave, others will try to be as well. If you panic, it could spread like wildfire, explains Plutarch. I just stare at him. Fire is catching, so to speak. He continues, as if I'm being slow on the uptake. Why don't I just pretend I'm on camera, Plutarch? I say. Yeah, perfect. One is always much braver with an audience, he says. Just look at the courage Peter just displayed. That's all I can do not to slap him. I've got to get back to coin before lockdown. You keep up the good work, he says, and then heads off. I crossed to the big letter E posted on the wall. Our space consists of a 12 by 12 foot square of stone, delineated by painted lines. Carved into the wall are two bunks. One of us will be sleeping on the floor, and a ground level cube space for storage. A piece of white paper, coated in clear plastic, reads, Bunker Protocol. I stare fixedly at the little black specks on the sheet. For a while, they're obscured by the residual blood droplets that I can't seem to wipe from my vision. Slowly, the words come into focus. The first section is entitled, On Arrival. Number one, make sure all members of your compartment are accounted for. 
My mother and Prim haven't arrived. But I was one of the first people to reach the bunker. Both of them are probably helping to relocate hospital patients. Number two. Go to the supply station and secure one pack for each member of your compartment. Ready your living area. Return packs. I scan the cavern until I locate the supply station. A deep room set off by a counter. People wait behind it, but there's not a lot of activity there yet. I walk over, give our compartment number, and request three packs. A man checks a sheet, pulls the specified packs from shelving, and swings them up onto the counter. After sliding one on my back and getting a grip on the other two with my hands, I turn to find a group rapidly forming behind me. Excuse me, I say as I carry my supplies through the others. Is it a matter of timing? Or is Plutarch right? Are these people modeling their behavior on mine? Back at our space, I open one of the packs to find a thin mattress, bedding, two sets of gray clothing, a toothbrush, a comb, and a flashlight. On examining the contents of the other pack, I find that the only discernible difference is that they contain both gray and white outfits. The latter will be for my mother and Prim, in case they have medical duties. After I make up the beds, store the clothes, and return the backpacks, I've got nothing to do but observe the last rule. Number three. Await further instructions. I sit cross-legged on the floor to wait. A steady flow of people begins to fill the room, claiming spaces, collecting supplies. It won't take long until the place is full up. I wonder if my mother and Prim are going to stay the night at wherever the hospital patients have been taken to? But no, I don't think so. They were on the list here. I'm starting to get nervous when my mother appears. I look behind her into a sea of strangers. Where's Prim? I ask. Isn't she here? She replies. She was supposed to come straight down from the hospital. She left ten minutes before I did. Where is she? Where could she have gone? I squeeze my lids tight shut for a moment to track her as I would prey on a hunt. See her react to the sirens, rush to help the patients, nod as they gesture for her to descend into the bunker, and then hesitate with her on the stairs. Torn for a moment. But why? My eyes fly open. The cat! She's going back for him! Oh no, my mother says. We both know that I'm right. We're pushing against the incoming tide, trying to get out of the bunker. Up ahead, I can see them preparing to shut the thick metal doors slowly rotating the metal wheels on either side inward. Somehow, I know that once they've sealed, nothing in the world will convince the soldiers to open them. Perhaps it will even be beyond their control. I'm indiscriminately shoving people aside as I shout for them to wait. The space between the doors shrinks to a yard, a foot. There are only a few inches left when I jam my hand through the crack. Open it! Let me out! I cry. Consternation shows on the soldiers' faces as they reverse the wheels a bit. Not enough to let me pass, but enough to avoid crushing my fingers. I take the opportunity to wedge my shoulder into the opening. Prim! I holler up the stairs. My mother pleads with the guards as I try to wriggle my way out. Prim! And then I hear it. The faint sound of footsteps on the stairs. We're coming! I hear my sister call. Oh, the door! That was Gail. They're coming! I tell the guards, and they slide the doors open about a foot. But I don't dare to move, afraid that they'll lock us all out, until Prim appears, her cheeks flushed with running, hauling Buttercup. 
I pull her aside, and Gale follows, twisting an armload of baggage sideways to get it into the bunker. The doors are closed with a loud and final clank. What? What were you thinking? I gave Prim an angry shake and then hug her, squashing Buttercup between us. Prim's explanation is already on her lips. I couldn't leave him behind, Cadmus. Not twice. Should have seen him pacing that room and howling. He had come back to protect us. Okay. Okay. I take a few breaths to calm myself, step back, and lift Buttercup by the scruff of the neck. I should have drowned you when I had the chance. His ears flatten and he raises a paw. I hiss before he gets a chance, which seems to annoy him a little, since he considers hissing his own personal sound of contempt. In retaliation, he gives a helpless kitten mew that brings my sister immediately to his defense. Oh, Katniss, don't tease him, she says, holding him back in her arms. He's already so upset. The idea that I've wounded the brute's tiny cat feelings just invites further taunting. But Prim's genuinely distressed for him. So instead, I visualize Buttercup's fur lining a pair of gloves, an image that has helped me deal with him over the years. Okay. Sorry. We're under the big E on the wall. Better get him settled before he loses it. Prim hurries off and I find myself face to face with Gale. He's holding the box of medical supplies from our kitchen in 12. Side of our last conversation, kiss, fallout, whatever. My game bag is slung across his shoulder. If Pete is right, these don't stand a chance, he says. Peter. Blood like raindrops on the window. Like wet mud on boots. Thanks for everything. I take our stuff. What were you doing up in our rooms? Just double checking, he says. We're in 47 if you need me. Practically everyone withdrew to their spaces when the doors shut, so I get to cross to our new home with at least 500 people watching me. I try to appear extra calm to make up for my frantic crashing through the crowd, like that's fooling anyone. So much for setting an example. <sighs> who cares? They all think I'm nuts anyway. One man, who I think I knocked to the floor, catches my eye and rubs his elbow resentfully. I almost hiss at him, too. Prim has Buttercup installed in the lower bunk, draped in a blanket so that only his face pokes out. This is how he likes to be when there's thunder, the only thing that actually frightens him. My mother puts her box carefully in the cube. I crouch, my back supported by the wall, to check what Gale managed to rescue in my hunting bag. The plant book, the hunting jacket, my parents' wedding photo, and the personal contents of my drawer. My Mockingjay pin now lives with Sinna's outfit, but there's the gold locket and the silver parachute with the spile and Peter's pearl. I knot the pearl into the corner of the parachute, bury it deep in the recesses of the bag, as if it's Peter's life and no one can take it away as long as I guard it. The faint sound of the sirens cuts off sharply. Coin's voice comes over the district audio system, thanking us all for an exemplary evacuation of the upper levels. 
She stresses that this is not a drill, as Peter Malark, the District 12 victor, has possibly made a televised reference to an attack on 13 tonight. That's when the first bomb hits. There's an initial sense of impact, followed by an explosion that resonates in my innermost parts, the lining of my intestines, the marrow of my bones, the roots of my teeth. We're all going to die, I think. My eyes turn upward, expecting to see giant cracks race across the ceiling, massive chunks of stone raining down upon us. But the bunker gives only a slight shudder. The lights go out, and I experience the disorientation of total darkness. Speechless human sounds, spontaneous shrieks, ragged breaths, baby whimpers, one musical bit of insane laughter dance around in the charged air. Then there's the hum of a generator, and a dim, wavering glow replaces the stark lighting that is the norm in 13. It's closer to what we had in our homes in 12, when the candles and fire burned low on a winter's night. I reach for Prim in the twilight clap my hand over her leg and pull myself over to her. Her voice remains steady as she croons to Buttercup. It's all right, baby. It's all right. We'll be okay down here. My mother wraps her arms around us. I allow myself to feel young for a moment and rest my head on her shoulder. That was nothing like the bombs in eight. Probably a bunker missile, says Prim keeping her voice soothing for the cat's sake. We learned about them during the orientation for new citizens. They're designed to penetrate deep into the ground before they go off. Because there's no point in bombing 13 on the surface anymore. Nuclear? I ask, feeling a chill run through me. Not necessarily, says Prim. Just some have a lot of explosives in them. But it could be either kind, I guess. The gloom makes it hard to see the heavy metal doors at the end of the bunker. Would there be any protection against a nuclear attack? And even if they were 100% effective at sealing out the radiation, which is really unlikely, would we ever be able to leave this place? The thought of spending whatever remains of my life in this stone vault horrifies me. I want to run madly for the door and demand to be released into whatever lies above. It's pointless. They would never let me out and I might start some kind of stampede. We're so far down, I'm sure we're safe, says my mother wanly. Is she thinking of my father's being blown to nothingness in the mines? That was a close call, though. Thank goodness Peter had the wherewithal to warn us. The wherewithal. A general term that somehow includes everything that was needed for him to sound the alarm. The knowledge, the opportunity, the courage, and something else I can't define. Peter seemed to have been waging a sort of battle in his mind, fighting to get the message out. Why? The ease with which he manipulates words is his greatest talent. Was his difficulty a result of his torture? Something more like madness? Coin's voice, perhaps a shade grimmer, fills the bunker, the volume level flickering with the lights. Apparently, Peter Millark's information was sound, and we owe him a great debt of gratitude. Sensors indicate the first missile was not nuclear, but very powerful. We expect more will follow. For the duration of the attack, citizens are to stay in their assigned areas until otherwise notified. 
A soldier alerts my mother that she's needed in the first aid station. She's reluctant to leave us, even though she'll only be 30 yards away. We'll be fine, really, I tell her. Do you think anything could get past him? I point to Buttercup, who gives me a little half-hearted hiss. We all have a laugh. Even I feel a little sorry for him. After my mother goes, I suggest, Why don't you climb in with him, Prim? I know it's silly, but I'm afraid the bunk might collapse on us during the attack, she says. If the bunks collapse, the whole bunker will have given way and buried us, but I decide this kind of logic won't actually be helpful. Instead, I clean out the storage cube and make Buttercup a bed inside. Then I pull a mattress out in front of it for my sister and me to share. We're given clearance in small groups to use the bathroom and blush our teeth. Blush our teeth. It's a grand new fad in uh, cosmetics in the capital. Blushing our teeth. We're given clearance in small groups to use the bathroom and brush our teeth, although showering has been canceled for the day. I curl up with Prim on the mattress, double layering the blankets because the cavern emits a dank chill. Buttercup, miserable even with Prim's constant attention, huddles in the cube and exhales a cat breath in my face. Despite the disagreeable conditions, I'm glad to have time with my sister. My extreme preoccupation since I came here, no, since the first games, really, has left little attention for her. I haven't been watching over her the way that I should, the way that I used to. After all, it was Gail who checked our compartment, not me. Something to make up for. I realize I've never even bothered to ask her about how she's handling the shock of coming here. So, how are you liking 13, Prim? I offer. Right now? She asks. We both laugh. I miss home badly sometimes, but then I remember there's nothing to miss there anymore. I feel safer here. We don't have to worry about you. Well, not in the same way. She pauses, and then a shy smile crosses her lips. I think they're going to train me to be a doctor. This is the first I've heard of it. Well, of course they are. They'd be stupid not to. They've been watching me when I come to help out in the hospital. I'm already taking the medic courses. It's just beginner stuff. I know a lot of it from home. Still, there's plenty to learn, she tells me. <sighs> That's great, I say. Prim, a doctor. She couldn't even dream of it in twelve. Something small and quiet, like a match being struck, lights up the gloom inside me. This is the sort of future a rebellion could bring. What about you, Cadmus? How are you managing? Her fingertip moves in short, gentle strokes between Buttercup's eyes. And don't say that you're fine. It's true. Whatever the opposite of fine is, that's what I am. So I go ahead and tell her about Peta, his deterioration on screen, and how I think they must be killing him at this very moment. Buttercup has to rely on himself for a while, because now Prim turns her attention on me. Pulling me closer, brushing the hair back behind my ears with her fingers. I've stopped talking because there's really nothing left to say. And there's this sort of piercing pain where my heart is. Maybe I'm even having a heart attack, but it doesn't seem worth mentioning. 
Katniss, I don't think President Snow will kill Peter, she says. Of course she says this. It's what she thinks will calm me. But her next words come as a surprise. If he does, he won't have anyone left that you want. He won't have any way to hurt you. Suddenly I'm reminded of another girl. One who had seen all the evil the capital had to offer. Joanna Mason, the tribute from District 7 in The Last Arena. I was trying to prevent her from going into the jungle where the Jabberjays mimicked the voices of loved ones being tortured, but she brushed me off, saying, They can't hurt me. I'm not like the rest of you. There's no one left I love. And then I know Prim is right. That Snow cannot afford to waste Peter's life, especially now, while the Mockingjay causes so much havoc. He's killed Sinna already. Destroyed my home. My family, Gale, and even Haymitch are out of his reach. Peter is all he has left. So what do you think they'll do to him? I ask. Prim sounds about a thousand years old when she speaks. Whatever it takes to break you. It seems like Katniss sort of remembers too infrequently to come back to Prim. Prim has some really good insight. She's a wise little lass, and I like her an awful lot. Um, <laughs> folks, thank you very much for joining me. Fancy's Live says, Sheesh, Prim having to act so mature is rough. Indeed it is. Yes, um, I think they they say hard times breed hard people. Um, and yet... You know, she's mature, and yet, let's see, who said it? Uh, Hogwarts Hippie says, so sweet. She would be an amazingly compassionate doctor. And that's exactly what she would be. Uh, there, I guess, because, you know, I said that saying out loud, and I was like, you know what? That's not, that doesn't really ring true here, does it? Because a hard person wouldn't have bothered with a cat. Certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone back for one. Uh, I think, you know... Uh, hard times do bring out certain things in people, and for for Prim, it seems to have brought out somebody who is willing to participate in the best ways she can, and has a lot of wisdom to offer. I like Prim a lot. Spider Author says, I'm trying to find the second movie from the library or streaming, but I can't find it. Um, the, the second Hunger Games or the second um, Mockingjay movie? They did four overall, right? If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, they did four total. Um, and frankly, I don't remember, I don't know if I remember anything from those last two movies. I remember, I remember book one and I remember book two, but I don't know if I remember much at all from the final two movies. Um, <laughs> Pretty Spade says, never mistake softness for weakness. Yeah, I think uh, th that is the thing about uh, uh, softness and, and genuine caring for something is that, you know, a lot of times that will produce a fierce defensiveness for certain things. Um, 
so yeah, certainly something to keep an eye on uh, and uh, in these characters, and also something to, I think, nurture in ourselves. I think this is a good thing, uh, especially with the things going on right now in the world. Um, uh, there are attacks constantly uh, on uh, trans individuals, on uh, people who live, I mean, gay people. Uh, I myself am on the rainbow flag, uh, not, not gay, but I am, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, somewhere between bisexual and pansexual, and so, um, you know, there are there are people that would really love for me to be very depressed right now uh, and very scared for the future. There, there are people who would really be happy about that, um, and uh, so I think it is important that we are both vocal, intentional, and um, strong. That we come on strong. Um, I think it's important that we <laughs> that we talk about these things uh, with with some significant fervency because there are things happening right now in the world that are going to require a ferocity like like Prim shows. This this is a it is a softness right, but it is a not a weakness. It is a softness that that Prim looks at and uh, <laughs> uh, that that Prim that Prim has and. Well, that softness results in her taking action, strong action, decisive action. Um, and so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that and that we get to read about it. So, good grand folks. Uh, we're going to roll on into our next chapter. I'm going to do a bit of review here for just a moment. So let me first go ahead and talk about a bit of review. Um, a, a review on our announcements. Number one. The router is on its way. New router is on its way. Thank you all very much. Um, if you donated during that, uh, go ahead and uh, pop into the Discord. Um, for those of you who do not know, even if you donated but you're not aware yet, um, over in Discord we have got uh, a special sort of set of permissions, a special role for patrons. And uh, for this month, because y'all donated to the router fund, y'all get that permission. So you get to check out all the old archive chats. And I'm offering all of you good folks a, um, uh, a soundbite. It's going to have to be in, normally sound bites are due on the 5th of every month, but uh, for y'all, because this is unique circumstances and because I'm not promising a time frame for when I will be delivering them, your due date is just any time this month, uh, but it must be in before August 1. Not on, before. Before August 1, if you want a sound bite. Uh, find more information over in the Discord about, like, uh, word count limits, that sort of thing. So, there you go. Um... Let's talk a, uh, oh, sorry, duh, the other huge thing. Um, yeah, Hogwarts Hippie, <laughs> thank you. Please remember to go vote in the next book slash series, y'all. There are lots of great suggestions. Indeed. Now, I think because we've got more folks in here, I'm going to take just a moment to go through some of these things about you know, why I do things certain way. Just a moment. I promise it will not be long. Two minutes. Give me 120 seconds. So, a couple of things to know. Number one, because it's the easier to explain, I think I'm going to be taking, um, especially for longer series, if we decide on a longer series coming up here, um, I'm going to be taking multiple votes. I promise I will get through the first book in its entirety. But after that, we might start to take some votes as to, like, do we want to continue this series or jump to a new one? Um, so I'll be taking more frequent votes in the future. Um, that way we can kind of we can commit to a series without necessarily saying, okay, 
I want to hear this, but I don't know if I want to hear all 14 or whatever of these books. And so we'll, we'll, we'll take more frequent votes to kind of reassess after that. I promise I will get through increments of entire books, you know, barring some big event. Uh, but we'll take some more frequent votes. That way we can have more confidence committing to some of these things. Because as per usual, I wish for you all to vote in all of the books that you are interested in. It's really important to me that... Um, uh, that I I, I want to read something that a lot of people will be happy with. So go ahead, any of those that you like, vote for multiple. I would definitely encourage you to vote for as many as you like. And finally, as Sandra says, we had 60 plus suggestions, so not all of them ended up on the vote. There are lots and lots of reasons for that. Um, I have listed a few here. Um, the the author the timing, my own personal connection to a series, uh, the subject matter, the target audience, um, how how recent it was, so many different factors. So just because it wasn't on this vote doesn't mean it won't be on one in the future. Uh, and I know some of these, like, it, it doesn't necessarily seem to follow any one specific rule. And that is because, well, frankly, it doesn't follow any one specific rule. It follows a ton of different rules sort of weighted differently in my mind. And so I know not all of them are on this list, uh, but I've, I've tried to put great ones on here that are going to be great matches. And I'm really thankful to all of you good folks who have put in suggestions because I learned a lot about new series that even if, I, even if they didn't end up on this list this time, I y'all have introduced me to a lot of new and interesting things, so I really appreciate that. So head on over there and vote, and remember, vote for more than one. Um, and remember, the one that you're voting for, your the, the little heart is underneath the one that you're voting for. So if you're if you want to vote for Dune, for instance, vote for you, you you click on the little heart underneath Dune. I know it's a little hard to tell. Some of them might seem like it's you're voting for the one. About, I don't know. Anyway, so there you go, folks. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Uh, if you want to find the link to get on over there, go ahead, use the links command. Uh, that vote is going to be up until the end of part two of this book. So this stream, our next stream, and the subsequent stream after that, it will be up throughout all of those. Uh, and then voting will be closed as of the beginning of part three of this book here. There we go. Jade, have a great one. Uh, <laughs> uh, good to see you. And uh, for any of you good folks who are having to get back to work, I thank you very much for being here. And I will see you later on. Uh, we're back to our regular upload schedule if everything goes well tonight. Uh, and then after that, that, that new router should be here soon. And I am excited. All right. I'm going to throw a Chatterbreak question at y'all. We're going to do some review. And I'm launching right into our next chapter. Here's a Chatterbreak question. This one is a, a point of curiosity here, right? We've got this uh, this rebellion movement, you know. Um, I want to I want to know. Uh, there are we, we've talked about you know fighting the little fight before, uh, fighting the the small fight, the one that doesn't seem big, doesn't seem incredible, uh, doesn't have books written about it, but it's the small pieces that go into every little bit of this. Prim and her mother right now are doing exactly that. They are they are fighting the small fight. Even the people at you know behind the counter here who are handing out these packs and making sure everyone gets the resources that they need, that is part of the small fight. And it's vitally important. Here's my question to you. What part of the small fight are you involved with or going to get involved with? For me, I'm big on communication, um, and uh, I'm also looking to start doing some uh, uh, start doing some some more fundraising, but not for me. Uh, probably like later in the, this month. 
So uh, we will talk about that later on. Um, at the end of the day, folks, my my uh, my chatterbreak question to you is: What part of that small fight are you involved with now, or would you get involved with? There we go. There's our question. Um, Hogwarts TV says, I must thank you once again, Sam, for this channel, your time, devotion, overall love for reading. Finding Sidecar reignited my own love for reading and audiobooks and connecting me with some amazingly beautiful people. I can tell y'all, uh, including, I mean, <laughs> certainly uh, yourself, uh, highly ranked among them, Hogwarts Hippie, I have also met some absolutely amazingly beautiful people. Just fantastic individuals, so many who are dedicated in so many ways, so many who are uh, here to listen and to hang out and to spend time with each other and to uh, to, to put together this little community. I've, I've, I've been saying it for a long time. This community is exactly and only what y'all make it, and y'all have made it great. Y'all have made it incredible. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. Let's talk a bit of review. We've just read uh, chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be reading chapters 10, 11, and 12 this week. So we're about to roll into chapter 11, but chapter 10 here. The beginning of part two. Everyone is reeling. We just saw Peta as the camera cut to black on his blood spattered across the tiles after he said the words, and you in 13, dead by morning. There's a panic. What, what does that mean? Does that really mean anything? Hamish shouts over the crowd and says, who knows if it's true or not, but PETA believes that it's true, and he's trying to get this message to us. There's going to be an attack from the Capitol, and sure enough, they get everyone down into their appropriate bunkers, and immediately, the bombs go off. There has indeed been an attack on District 13, and... Peter warned them, in spite of the danger that he's in, in spite of the fact that he is already in a position where he is, um, he's being actively tortured, in spite of all of this, he takes the opportunity and goes for it. And he warns District 13, which saves people. It saves Katniss's mother and sister, probably Gale. Tons of people from District 13 have been saved as a result of Peter's actions. Now, this, of course, just causes Katniss to worry even more. As she's huddled down in her section of the bunker with her mother, who has to go off and perform some medical duties, uh, and then just her and Prim and that darn cat Buttercup, she kind of vents a little bit and has a chance to express all the things that she fears about Peta. And with this, Prim has some unexpectedly good news... I'm gonna put that with a, a question mark in italics. They're not going to kill Peta. She, Prim doesn't believe that's going to happen. Why? Because if he does, President Snow won't have anyone left that you want. They won't have any way to hurt you. And Katniss realizes this is probably true. The Capitol simply does not have access to anyone else that Katniss truly cares about. Uh, most of them are locked up safe in 13. Pete is the only one. And so if they kill him, then that's it. They've got nothing on Katniss, and she can go absolutely buck wild with no concern whatsoever for what happens next. But then Katniss asks, so what do you think they'll do to him? And Prim responds, whatever it takes to break you, Katniss. 
What will it take to break Katniss Everdeen? Chapter 11. What will break me? This is the question that consumes me over the next three days as we wait to be released from our prison of safety. What will break me into a million pieces so that I'm beyond repair, beyond usefulness? I mention it to no one, but it devours my waking hours and weaves itself throughout my nightmares. Four more bunker missiles fall over this period. All massive, all very damaging, but there's no urgency to the attack. The bombs are spread out over the long hours so that just when you think the raid is over, another blast sends shockwaves through your guts. It feels more designed to keep us in lockdown than to decimate 13. Cripple the district, yes, give the people plenty to do to keep the place running again. But destroy it? No. Coin was right on that point. You don't destroy what you want to acquire in the future. I assume what they really want in the short term is to stop the airtime assaults and keep me off the televisions of Pan Am. We receive next to no information about what's happening. Our screens never come back on, and we get only brief audio updates from Coin about the nature of the bombs. Certainly, the war is still being waged, but as to its status, we're in the dark. Inside the bunker, cooperation is the order of the day. We adhere to a strict schedule for meals and bathing, exercise and sleep. Small periods of socialization are granted to alleviate the tedium. Our space becomes very popular because both children and adults have a fascination with Buttercup. He attains celebrity status with his evening game of Crazy Cat. I created this by accident a few years ago, during a winter blackout. You simply wiggle a flashlight beam around to the floor, and Buttercup tries to catch it. I'm petty enough to enjoy it, because I think it makes him look stupid. Inexplicably, everyone here thinks he's a clever and delightful feline. I'm even issued a special set of batteries, an enormous waste, to be used for this purpose. The citizens of Thirteen are truly starved for entertainment. It's on the third night during our game that I answer the question eating away at me. Crazy Cat becomes a metaphor for my situation. I am Buttercup. Peta, the thing I so badly want to secure, is the light. As long as Buttercup feels he's got the chance of catching the elusive light under his paws, he's bristling with aggression. That's how I've been since I left the arena with Peta alive. When the light goes out completely, Buttercup's temporarily distraught and confused, but he recovers and moves on to other things. That's what would happen if Peta died. But the one thing that sends Buttercup into a tailspin is when I leave the light on but put it hopelessly out of his reach, high on the wall, beyond even his jumping skills. He paces below the wall. He wails and can't be comforted or distracted. He's useless until I shut the light off. That's what Snow is trying to do to me now. Only I don't know what form his game takes. 
Maybe this realization on my part is all Snow needs. Thinking that Peter was in his possession and being tortured for rebel information was bad, but thinking he's being tortured specifically to incapacitate me is unendurable. And it's under the weight of this revelation that I truly begin to break. After Crazy Cat, we're directed to bed. The power's been coming and going. Sometimes the lamps burn at full brightness, other times we squint at one another in the brownouts. At bedtime, they turn the lamps to near darkness and activate safety lights in each space. Prim, who's decided that the walls will hold up, snuggles next to Buttercup in the lower bunk. My mother's on the upper. I offer to take a bunk, but they make me keep the floor mattress since I flail around so much while I'm sleeping. I'm not flailing now, as my muscles are rigid with the tension of holding myself together. The pain over my heart returns, and from it I imagine tiny fissures spreading out into my body. Through my torso, down my arms and legs, over my face, leaving it crisscrossed with cracks. One good jolt of a bunker missile, and I could shatter into strange, razor-sharp shards. When the restless, wiggling majority is settled into sleep, I carefully extricate myself from my blanket and tiptoe through the cavern until I find Finnick, feeling for some unspecified reason that he will understand. He sits under the safety light in his space, nodding his rope, not even pretending to rest. As I whisper my discovery of Snow's plan to break me, it dawns on me. This strategy is very old news to Finnick. It's what broke him. This is what they're doing to you with Annie, isn't it? I ask. Well, they didn't arrest her because they thought she'd be a wealth of rebel information, he says. They know I'd never risk telling her about anything like that. For her own protection. Oh, Finnick. I'm so sorry. No. I'm sorry. That I didn't warn you somehow. Suddenly, a memory resurfaces. I'm strapped to my bed, mad with rage and grief after the rescue. Finnick is trying to console me about Peta. They'll figure out he doesn't know anything pretty fast, and they won't kill him if they think they can use him against you. He did warn me, though. On the hovercraft. Only when you said that they'd use Peter against me, I thought you meant, like, as bait. To lure me into the capital somehow. I shouldn't have even said that. It was too late for it to be of any help to you. Since I hadn't warned you about it before the court of quell, I should have shut up about how snow operates. Finnick yanks the end of his rope, and an intricate knot becomes a straight line again. It's just that I didn't know when I met you. I didn't understand. After your first games, I thought the whole romance was a, an act on your part. We all expected you'd continue that strategy. But it wasn't until Peter hit the force field and nearly died that I... Finnick hesitates. I think back to the arena... How I sobbed when Finnick revived Peter, the quizzical look on Finnick's face, the way he excused my behavior, blaming it on my pretend pregnancy. But you what? 
and I knew I misjudged you. That you do love him. I'm not saying in what way. Maybe you don't know yourself, but anyone paying attention could see how much you care for him. Anyone? On Snow's visit before the victory tour, he challenged me to erase any doubts of my love for Peter. Convince me, Snow said. It seems, under the hot pink sky with Peter's life in limbo, I finally did. And in doing so, I gave him the weapon he needed to break me. Finnick and I sit for a long time in silence, watching the knots bloom and vanish before I can ask, How do you bear it? Finnick looks at me in disbelief. I don't, Katniss. Obviously I don't. I drag myself out of nightmares each morning and find there's no relief in waking. Something in my expression stops him. Better not to give in to it. It takes ten times as long to put yourself back together as it does to fall apart. Well, he must know. I take a deep breath, forcing myself back into one piece. The more you can distract yourself, the better, he says. First thing tomorrow, we'll get you your own rope. Until then, take mine. I spend the rest of the night on my mattress, obsessively making knots, holding them up for Buttercup's inspection. If one looks suspicious, he swipes it out of the air and bites at it a few times to make sure it's dead. By morning, my fingers are sore, but I'm still holding on. With 24 hours of quiet behind us, Coin finally announces that we can leave the bunker. Our old quarters must have been destroyed by the bombings. Everyone must follow exact directions to their new compartments. We clean our spaces as directed and file obediently toward the door. Before I'm halfway there, Boggs appears and pulls me from the line. He signals for Gale and Finnick to join us. People move aside to let us by. Some even smile at me, since the crazy cat game seems to have made me more lovable. Out the door, up the stairs, down the hall to one of the multi-directional elevators, and finally, we arrive at special defense. Nothing along our route has been damaged, but we are still very deep. Boggs ushers us into a room virtually identical to command. Coin, Plutarch, Haymitch, Cressida, and everybody else around the table looks exhausted. Someone has finally broken out the coffee, although I'm sure it's only viewed as an emergency stimulant, and Plutarch has both hands wrapped tightly around his cup as if at any moment it might be taken away. There's no small talk. We need all four of you suited up and above ground, says the president. You have two hours to get footage showing the damage from the bombing, establish that 13's military unit remains not only functional but dominant, and most importantly, that the Mockingjay is still alive. Any questions? Can we have coffee? asks Finnick. Steaming cups are handed out. I stare distastefully at the shiny black liquid, never having been much of a fan of the stuff, but thinking that it might help me stay on my feet. Finnick sloshes some cream in my cup and reaches into the sugar bowl. You want a sugar cube? He asks in his old seductive voice. That's how we met, with Finnick offering me sugar. Surrounded by horses and chariots, costumed and painted for the crowds, before we were allies. 
before I had any idea what made him tick. The memory actually coaxes a smile out of me. Here. It improves the taste, he says in his real voice, plunking three cubes into my cup. As I turn to go suit up as the mocking jay, I catch Gale watching me and Finnick unhappily. What now? Does he actually think something's going on between us? Maybe he saw me go to Phoenix last night. I would have passed the Hawthorne space to get there. I guess that probably rubbed him the wrong way. Me seeking out Phoenix company instead of his. Well, fine. I've got rope burn on my fingers, I can barely hold my eyes open, and a camera crew is waiting for me to do something brilliant. And Snow's got PETA. Gale can think whatever he wants. In my new remake room in Special Defense, my prep team slaps me into my Mockingjay suit, arranges my hair, and applies minimal makeup before my coffee's even cooled. In ten minutes, the cast and crew of the next propos are making the circuitous trek to the outside. I slurp my coffee as we travel, finding that the cream and sugar greatly enhance its flavor. As I knock back the dregs that have settled to the bottom of the cup, I feel a slight buzz start to run through my veins. After climbing a final ladder, Boggs hits a lever that opens a trap door. Fresh air rushes in. I take big gulps and for the first time allow myself to feel how much I hated the bunker. We emerge into the woods and my hands start to run through the leaves overhead. Some are just starting to turn. What day is it? I ask to no one in particular. Boggs tells me September begins next week. September. That means Snow has had Peta in his clutches for five, maybe six weeks. I examine a leaf on my palm and see I'm shaking. I can't will myself to stop. I blame the coffee and try to focus on slowing my breathing, which is far too rapid for my pace. Debris begins to litter the forest floor. We come to our first crater. Thirty yards wide, and I can't tell how deep. Very. Bog says anyone in the first ten levels would likely have been killed. We skirt the pit and continue on. Can you rebuild it? Gale asks. Not any time soon. That one didn't get much. A few backup generators and a poultry farm, says Boggs. We'll just seal it off. The trees disappear as we enter the area inside the fence. The craters are ringed with a mixture of old and new rubble. Before the bombing, very little of the current 13 was above ground. A few guard stations, the training area, about a foot of the top floor of our building, where Buttercup's window jutted out, with several feet of steel on top of it. Even that was never meant to withstand much more than a superficial attack. How much of an edge did the boys' warning give you? Says Hamish. About ten minutes before our own systems would have detected the missiles, says Boggs. But it did help, right? I ask. I can't bear it if he says no. Absolutely, Boggs replies. Civilian evacuation was completed. Seconds count when you're under attack. Ten minutes meant lives saved. Prim, I think, and Gale. They were in the bunker only a couple of minutes before the first missile hit. Peter might have saved them. Add their names to the list of things I can never stop owing him for. Cressida has the idea to film me in front of the ruins of the old Justice Building. 
which is something of a joke since the Capitol's been using it as a backdrop for fake news broadcasts for years to show that the district no longer existed. Now, with the recent attack, the Justice Building sits about ten yards away from the edge of a new crater. As we approach what used to be the grand entrance, Gail points out something and the whole party slows down. I don't know what the problem is at first, and then I see the ground strewn with fresh pink and red roses. Don't touch them, I yell. They're for me. The sickeningly sweet smell hits my nose, and my heart begins to hammer against my chest. So I didn't imagine it. The rose on my dresser. Before me lies Snow's second delivery. Long-stemmed pink and red beauties. The very flowers that decorated the set where Peta and I performed our post-victory interview. Flowers not meant for one, but for a pair of lovers. I explain to the others as best I can. Upon inspection, they appear to be harmless, if genetically enhanced, flowers. Two dozen roses, slightly wilted, most likely dropped after the last bombing. A crew in special suits collects them and carts them away. I feel certain they will find nothing extraordinary in them, though. Snow knows exactly what he's doing to me. It's like having Sinna beaten to a pulp while I watch from my tribute tube. It's designed to unhinge me. Like then, I try to rally and fight back, but as Cressida gets Castor and Pollux into place, I feel my anxiety building. I'm so tired, so wired, and so unable to keep my mind on anything but Peta since I've seen the roses. The coffee was a huge mistake. What I didn't need was a stimulant. My body visibly shakes and I can't seem to catch my breath. After days in the bunker, I'm squinting no matter what direction I turn and the light hurts. Even in the cool breeze, sweat trickles down my face. So... What exactly do you need me for again? Just a few quick lines to show you're alive and still fighting, says Cressida. Okay. I take my position and then I'm starting... So, what exactly do you need from me again? I ask. Just a few quick lines to show you're alive and still fighting, says Cressida. Okay. I take my position and then I'm staring into the red light. Staring. Staring. I'm sorry. I got nothing. Cressida walks up to me. You feeling okay? I nod. She pulls a small cloth from her pocket and blots my face. How about we do the old Q&A thing? Yeah, that... That would help, I think. I cross my arms to hide the shaking. I glance at Finnick, who gives me a thumbs up, but he's looking pretty shaky himself. Cressida's back in position now. So, Katniss, you've survived the capital bombing of 13. How did it compare to what you experienced on the ground in 8? We were so far underground this time, there was no real danger. Thirteen's alive and well and so... <sighs> My voice cuts off in a dry, squeaking sound. 
Try the line again, says Cressida. Thirteen's alive and well, and so am I. I take a breath, trying to force air down my diaphragm. Thirteen's alive and so... No, that's wrong. I swear I can still smell those roses. Katniss, just this one line and you're done for today, I promise, says Cressida. Thirteen's alive and well, and so am I. I swing my arms to loosen myself up, place my fists on my hips, and then drop them to my sides. Saliva is filling my mouth at a ridiculous rate, and I feel vomit at the back of my throat. I swallow hard and open my lips so I can get the stupid line out and go hide in the woods, and that's when I start crying. It's impossible to be the Mockingjay. Impossible to complete even this one sentence, because now I know that everything I say will be directly taken out on Peta. Result in his torture, but not his death. No, nothing so merciful as that. Snow will ensure that his life is much worse than death. Cut, I hear Cressida say quietly. What's wrong with her? Plutarch says under his breath. She's figured out how Snow is using Peter, says Finnick. There's something like a collective sigh of regret from the semicircle of people spread out before me. Because I know this now. Because there will never be a way for me to not know this again. Because beyond the military disadvantage losing a Mockingjay entails, I am broken. Several sets of arms would embrace me. But in the end, the only person I truly want to comfort me is Hamish. Because he loves Peter too. I reach out for him and say something like his name, and he's there, holding me and patting my back. It's okay. It'll be okay, sweetheart. He sits me on a length of broken marble pillar and keeps an arm around me while I sob. I can't do this anymore. I know. All I can think of is what he's going to do to Peter because I'm the Mockingjay. I get out. I know. Image's arm tightens around me. Did you see him? How weird he acted. What are they doing? What are they doing to him? I'm gasping for air between breaths, but I manage one last phrase. It's my fault. And then I cross some line into hysteria and there's a needle in my arm and the world slips away. They must be strong, whatever they shot into me, because it's a full day before I come to. My sleep wasn't peaceful, though. I had the sense of emerging from a world of dark, haunted places where I traveled alone. Hamish sits in the chair by my bed, his skin waxen, his eyes bloodshot. I remember about Peta and start to tremble again. Hamish reaches out and squeezes my shoulder. It's all right. We're going to try to get Peter out. What? That makes no sense. Plutarch is sending in the rescue team. He's got people on the inside. He thinks that we can get Peter back alive. Why didn't we before? I say. Because it's costly. 
everyone agrees this is the right thing to do. It's the same choice that we made in the arena to do whatever it takes to keep you going. We can't lose the Mockingjay now. And you can't perform unless you snow. And you can't perform unless you know Snow can't take it out on Peter. Hamage offers me a cup. Here, drink something. I slowly sit up and take a sip of water. What do you mean, costly? He shrugs. Covers will be blown. People may die. But keep in mind that they're dying every day. And it's not just Peter, we're getting on the out for Finnick too. Where is he? I ask. Behind that screen, sleeping his sedative off. He lost it right after we knocked you out, says Hamish. I smile a little, feeling a bit less weak. Hey, it was an excellent shoot. You two cracked up and Boggs left to arrange the mission to get Peter. We're officially in reruns. Well, if Boggs is leading it, that's a plus, I say. Oh, he's on top of it. It was volunteer only, but he pretended not to notice me waving my hand in the air, says Hamish. You see, he's already demonstrated good judgment. Something's wrong. Hamish is trying a little too hard to cheer me up. It's not really his style. So, who else volunteered? I think that there were seven altogether, he says evasively. I get a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. Who else, Hamish? I insist. Hamish finally drops the good-natured act. You know who else, Katniss. You know who stepped up first. Of course I do. Gail. There we have it, folks. Our second of three chapters for the evening. I am going to take a quick five-minute break, but not before leaving you with a Chatterbreak question. And then when we come back, we're going to talk Chatterbreak question. We're going to do review, and we're going to hit our third and final chapter of the evening. Man, it's going to be back on this three-chapter schedule. I do not miss the two-chapter schedule. Folks, I will see you in five minutes. But first, Chatterbreak. We've got this mission heading out to go and rescue PETA, right? Because it's very clear that although it's going to be costly, and I, I, I want to be clear here, costly doesn't mean it's going to be expensive to manage. It's going to be the sort of thing where they're going to have to permanently spend, they're going to have to burn resources, resources in the form of people on the inside, people who might be loyal to the, uh, might be loyal to the rebellion. Um, People have a great chance of dying to try and make this happen, but in their minds, and they may well be correct, Katniss is the most important thing for the Rebellion, and the only way that Katniss can do what Katniss needs to do is if she knows every time she acts, it's not going to hurt Peta a little bit more, or a lot more. We've got this rescue. We know that Gale has 
offered himself as the first volunteer to go and retrieve PETA. The question is, why? I'll see you in five minutes. Everyone, welcome back. It is grand to have you here, as per usual. Gwendog says, ooh, man, I dozed off several times during those chapters. Well, not to fear, Gwendog, because we're going to talk about our Chatterbreak question, and then I'm going to do a little bit of review that will hopefully get you caught up to where you need to be. Folks, why is Gale volunteering for this mission? I'm seeing some interesting takes in chat right now. Let's go take a look. Where are we at here? Where are we at? Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Hogwarts Hippie kicks it off with, I don't like Gale. I don't trust him at all. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Orly Rose says, it seems like he regressed rather than matured with what happened to Katniss and 12. I also hate how they treat Katniss like a cardboard cutout model of a heroine and stifle her. Hogwarts Hippie says, Agree 100%. Wait, was that the Chatterbreak question? My stream cut to the break in the middle of Sam talking. Oh, really? Weird. Uh, but yes, you are correct. Um, Orly Rose says he needs to prove himself, quote, prove himself to her, and possibly hopes to, quote, win back the first spot in her regard with his actions. I don't think he believes Katniss loves PETA, and so he wants to get her back to where he feels she belongs. Interesting. Spider author says, I think Gail loves her so much that he wants what's best for her, no matter what. Interesting. Interesting. Orly Rose says, I used to hope this. And I think, uh, uh, I used to hope this and think it, but that's kind of shifted. I think he's got a core of selfishness, self-centeredness that came from his background and that leads him to not being able to truly love her. My view on Gail has been moving less favorable. Grimmelkin says, I think maybe he does know she loves Peter the most and has got nothing left to lose by going on the mission and can show her the depth of his love by acknowledging her real feelings. I suppose it's possible he's doing this to strike back at her as well in a sort of dramatic pity party. And then I believe Hogwarts Hippie jumps in with the darkest take, uh, saying, okay, this might sound dark, but I honestly think Gale volunteered so he can eliminate PETA. I think Gale is going to pretend like he is trying his hardest to save PETA, but somehow will end up killing him instead. It's like he will be eliminating PETA, AKA his competition, so that he can console Katniss in her time of need and give her all to himself, uh, have her all to himself. Hopefully that's wrong, but Gale has grown darker in my eyes and is, and, uh, and something is very off about him. It seems that there is a, this is sort of an undercurrent about, about um, Gale and President Coyne as well, a sort of like, because uh, I assume that part of part of this is sort of the discussion between them um, that, that has sort of prompted some of y'all to, to be thinking these, you know, to, to be assigning some very negative values to Gale. Um, and I mean, I do think that is part of Katniss's struggle right now, certainly, to be able to wonder like who she can trust because trust isn't binary, right? I mean, would she trust, would she trust like being alone in a room with Coin or with Gale? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like maybe not what they would say to her, but you know, she would like, she wouldn't fear, fear for her life. But then there's the question of, do they want her to be happy? Can Katniss trust that? Do they want her to 
Uh, or do either of them individually want, uh, you know, what do they want for her? What do they want for her future, long term? What do they want her to do right now? Um, can Katniss trust their feelings on all of these different sort of smaller issues? And that question is a much more complicated one. And this idea of trust in any rebellion, in any at any point where, you know, at any time, you really could sort of like go tattle, right? And the equivalent of that is like giving up the the rebellion to either uh you know falling into dark trends itself or to just give it up to the capital all of this trust is is you know built on these common ideas of knowing that the capital is wrong uh and working towards something better something specific that is better um but at the end of the day this trust is i mean it's something that we've talked a little bit about before this trust is vitally important and absolutely one of the most challenging things that one must be ready for uh, when you are trying to oppose some huge force like the capital. This idea of, you know, who can you trust and, and why and, you know, whether or not you're going to let yourself fall into suspicion of certain kinds and whether or not you're going to choose to act on those suspicions. It's one of those big unforeseen challenges of resistance because trust is one of the strongest points of um, uh, one of the most vital points of strength in any rebellion all right folks here we go let's talk a bit of review thank you very much for the chatterbreak discussion i love y'all and let's talk about our past couple of chapters so we can get into our third and final chapter of this evening chapters 10 and 11. In chapter 10, they are reeling from the revelation that not only is PETA doing very poorly, but he is risking even this tenuous position to give them a warning about an oncoming attack. Turns out PETA is right. He wasn't lying. He wasn't wrong. N 10 minutes later, there are bombs dropping on District 13. Bombs that destroy uh, upper levels and absolutely would have killed not only lots of people but also probably Katniss's mother probably Prim maybe even Gail she owes that to him now as well and she realizes essentially how the capital is how Snow is using PETA it's to make her ineffective they don't want to kill PETA because they don't have anything to hold over her head and they don't need to in fact if they can make PETA's life awful Katniss will continue to blame herself, and the more that they can tie it into his life is awful because of your actions, Katniss, the less effective she will be, because every time she tries to take an action, her first thought will always be, here is how this is hurting PETA. It's an effort to take away how effective she can possibly be. Um, Katniss, of course, has to perform. She has got more important things and i say this not because PETA is unimportant or minimally important but simply because the the goal of resisting the capital is underneath uh, is is the umbrella over which you know keeping PETA safe lies if katniss were to say you know what i'm not going to be the the i'm not going to be your your um uh, mockingjay anymore that doesn't mean that PETA is saved it doesn't mean PETA is rescued as a matter of fact I can't imagine a scenario in which the capital would would do anything positive for them except for continue to use PETA 
over Katniss's head, you know, if she were to surrender herself to the capital and go parade around the district saying, I renounce my ties to the rebels and uh, I, I fully subject myself to the, to the, the capital. The, the capital wouldn't let up. They would use this for the rest of her life and, and it would be a constant terror, uh, constant pain for both of them. And so she's only got the one choice, but the capital, all they can do is make that choice harder. And Katniss realizes this has happened before. This is what happened to Finnick. They had control over Annie and all the while, Finnick sort of trying to survive underneath this, uh, Finnick, Finnick lived with that. We're going to learn a little bit more about that as we proceed here. But uh, after the bombing, Katniss tries to put together another propo, but the filming cannot proceed. Katniss is simply too distraught. And as a result, leadership here in 13 determines that it would be the wisest decision right now, in spite of how costly it's going to be in resources and probably human lives. The right decision would be to mount a rescue attempt to go retrieve PETA. And Gail is the first volunteer. Chapter 12 Today I might lose both of them. I try to imagine a world where both Gale's and Peta's voices have ceased. Hands stilled, eyes unblinking. I'm standing there over their bodies, having a last look, leaving the room where they lie. But when I open the door and step out into the world, there's only a tremendous void. A pale, gray nothingness that is all my future holds. Do you want me to have them sedate you until it's over? Asks Hamish. He's not joking. This is a man who spent his adult life at the bottom of a bottle, trying to anesthetize himself against the capital's crimes. The sixteen-year-old boy who won the second quarter quell must have had people he loved. Family, friends, a sweetheart maybe, that he fought to get back to. Where are they now? How is it that until Peter and I were thrust upon him, there was no one at all in his life? What did Snow do to them? No, I say. I want to go back to the capital. I want to be part of the rescue mission. They're gone, says Hamish. How long ago did they leave? Could I, I could catch up? I could... What? What could I do? Hamish shakes his head. It'll never happen. You're too valuable and too vulnerable. There was a lot of talk of sending you to another district to divert the capital's attention while the rescue take place, but no one felt that you could handle it. Please, Hamish. I'm begging now. We have to do something. I can't just sit here waiting to hear if they died. There must be something I can do. All right. Let me go talk to Plutarch. You stay put. But I can't. 
Hamage's footsteps are still echoing in the outer hall when I fumble my way through the slit in the dividing curtain to find Phoenix sprawled out on his stomach, his hands twisted in his pillowcase. Although it's cowardly, cruel even, to rouse him from the shadowy, muted drug land to stark reality, I go ahead and do it, because I can't face this by myself. As I explain our situation, his initial agitation mysteriously ebbs. Don't you see, Katniss, this will decide things. One way or the other, by the end of the day, they'll either be dead or with us. It's... <laughs> it's more than we could hope for. Well, that's a sunny view of our situation, and yet there's something calming about the idea that this torment could come to an end. The curtain yanks back, and there's Hamish. He has a job for us, if we can pull it together. They need post-bombing footage of 13. If we can get it in the next few hours, Beatty can air it leading up to the rescue, and maybe keep the capital's attention elsewhere. Yes, a distraction, says Finnick. A decoy of sorts. What we really need is something so riveting that even President Snow won't be able to tear himself away. Have you got anything like that? asks Hamish. Having a job that might help the mission snaps me into focus. While I knock down breakfast and get prepped, I try to think of what I might say. President Snow must be wondering how that blood-spattered floor and his roses are affecting me. If he wants me broken, then I have to be whole. But I don't think I will convince him of anything by shouting a couple of defiant lines at the camera. Besides, that won't buy the rescue team any time. Outbursts are short. It's stories that take time. I don't know if it will work, but when the television crews all assembled above ground, I asked Cressida if she could start by asking questions about PETA. I take a seat on the fallen marble pillar where I had my breakdown, wait for the red light and Cressida's question. How did you meet PETA? she asks. And then I do the thing that Hamish has wanted since my first interview. I open up. When I met Peter, I was 11 years old, and I was almost dead. I talk about that awful day, when I tried to sell the baby clothes in the rain. How Peter's mother chased me from the bakery door, and how he took a beating to leave me the loaves of bread that saved our lives. We'd never even spoken. The first time I ever talked to Peter was on the train to the games. But he was already in love with you, says Cressida. I guess so. I allow myself a small smile. How are you doing with their separation? She asks. Not well. I know at any moment Snow could kill him. Especially since he warned Thirteen about the bombing. It's a terrible thing to live with. But because of what they're putting him through, I don't have any reservations anymore about doing whatever it takes to destroy the capital. I'm finally free. I turn my gaze upward and watch the flight of a hawk across the sky. President Snow once admitted to me that the capital was fragile. At the time, I didn't know what he meant. It's hard to see clearly because I was so afraid. Now I'm not. The capital is fragile because it depends on the other districts for everything 
food, energy, even the peacekeepers that police us. If we declare our freedom, the capital collapses. President Snow, thanks to you I am officially declaring mine today. I've been sufficient, if not dazzling. Everyone loves the bread story, but it's my message to President Snow that gets the wheels spinning in Plutarch's brain. He hastily calls Finnick and Hamish over, and they have a brief but intense conversation that I can see Hamish isn't happy with. Plutarch seems to win. Finnick is pale but nodding his head by the end of it. As Finnick moves to take my seat before the camera, You don't have to do this! Yes, I do. If it will help her. Finnick balls up his rope in his hand. I'm ready. I don't know what to expect. A love story about Annie? An account of the abuses in District 4? But Finnick O'Dare takes a completely different tack. President Snow used to sell me. My body, that is. Finnick begins in a flat, removed tone. I wasn't the only one. If a victor is considered desirable, the president gives them as a reward or allows people to buy them for an exorbitant amount of money. If you refuse, he kills someone you love. So you do it. That explains it, then. Finnick's parade of lovers in the capital. They were never real lovers, just people like our old head peacekeeper, Cray, who bought desperate girls to devour and discard because he could. I want to interrupt the taping and beg Phoenix forgiveness for every false thought I've ever had about him. But we have a job to do. And I sense Phoenix's role will be far more effective than mine. I wasn't the only one, but I was the most popular. And perhaps the most defenseless. Because the people I loved were so defenseless. To make themselves feel better, my patrons would make presence of money or jewelry, but I found a much more valuable form of payment. Secrets, I think. That's what Finnick told me his lovers paid him in. Only I thought the whole arrangement was by his choice. Secrets, he says, echoing my thoughts. And this is where you're going to want to stay tuned, President Snow, because so very many of them were about you. But let's start with some of the others. Finnick begins to weave a tapestry so rich in detail that you can't doubt its authenticity. Tales of strange sexual appetites, betrayals of the heart, bottomless greed and bloody power plays, drunken secrets whispered over damp pillowcases in the dead of night. Finnick was someone bought and sold, a district slave, a handsome one, certainly, but in reality, harmless. Who would he tell? And who would believe him if he did? But some secrets are too delicious not to share. I don't know the people Finnick names. All seem to be prominent capital citizens. But I know from listening to the chatter of my prep team, the attention the most mild slip in judgment can draw. If a bad haircut can lead to hours of gossip, what will charges of incest, backstabbing, blackmail, and arson produce? 
Even as the waves of shock and recrimination roll over the capital, the people there will be waiting, as I am now, to hear about the president. And now, on to our good president, Coriolanus Snow, says Finnick. Such a young man when he rose to power, such a clever one to keep it. How, you must ask yourself, how did he do it? One word, that's all you really need to know. Poison. Finnick goes back to Snow's political ascension, which I know nothing of, and works his way up to the president, pointing out case after case of the mysterious deaths of Snow's adversaries, or, even worse, his allies, who had the potential to become threats. People dropping dead at a feast, or slowly, inexplicably declining into shadows over a period of months. Blamed on bad shellfish, elusive viruses, or an overlooked weakness in the aorta. Snow drinking from the poisoned cup himself to deflect suspicion. But antidotes don't always work. They say that's why he wears the roses that reek of perfume. They say it's to cover up the scent of blood from the mouth sores that will never heal. They say, they say, they say. Snow has a list, and no one knows who will be next. Poison. The perfect weapon for a snake. Since my opinion of the capital and its noble president are already so low, I can't say Phoenix's allegations shock me. They seem to have far more effect on the displaced capital rebels, like my crew and Fulvia. Even Plutarch occasionally reacts in surprise, maybe wondering how a specific tidbit passed him by. When Finnick finishes, they just keep the cameras rolling until he finally has to be the one to say... Cut... The crew hurries inside to edit the material, and Plutarch leads Finnick off for a chat, probably to see if he has any more stories. I'm left with Haymitch in the rubble, wondering if Finnick's fate would one day have been mine. Why not? Snow could have gotten a really good price for the girl on fire. Is that what happened to you? I ask Haymitch. No! A mother and younger brother... My girl, they were all dead two weeks after I was crowned victor because of that stunt that I pulled with the force field. Snow had no one to use against me. I'm surprised he didn't just kill you, I say. Oh, no. I was the example. The person to hold up to the young Phoenix and Joannas and Kashmir's of what could happen to a victor who caused problems, says Hamish. But he knew he had got no leverage against me. Until Peter and I came along, I say softly. I don't even get a shrug in return. With our job done, there's nothing left for Finnick and me to do but wait. We try to fill the dragging minutes in special defense, tie knots, push our lunch around our bowls, blow things up at the shooting range. Because of the danger of detection, no communication comes from the rescue team. At 1500, the designated hour, we stand tense and silent in the back of a room full of screens and computers and watch Beatty and his team try to dominate the airwaves. His usual fidgety distraction is replaced with a determination I've never seen. 
Most of my interview doesn't make the cut, just enough to show I'm alive and still defiant. It is Finnick's salacious and gory account of the capital that takes the day. Is Beatty's skill improving? Or are his counterparts in the capital a little too fascinated to want to tune Finnick out? For the next 60 minutes, the capital feed alternates between the standard afternoon newscast, Finnick, and attempts to black it all out. But the rebel tech team manages to override even the latter, and in a real coup, keeps control for almost the entire attack on Snow. Mm, let it go, says Beatty, throwing his hands up, relinquishing the broadcast back to the capital. He mops his face with a cloth. If they're not out of there by now, they're all dead. He spins in his chair to see Finnick and me reacting to his words. It was a good plan, though. Did Plutarch show it to you? Of course not. Beatty takes us to another room and shows us how the team, with the help of rebel insiders, will attempt, has attempted, to free the victors from an underground prison. It seems to have involved knockout gas distributed by the ventilation system, a power failure, the detonation of a bomb in a government building several miles from the prison, and now the disruption of the broadcast. Beatty's glad we find the plan hard to follow, because then our enemies will too. Like your electricity trap in the arena? I ask. Exactly. And see how well that worked out, says Beatty. Well, not really, I think. Finnick and I try to station ourselves in command, where surely first word of the rescue will come. But we're barred because serious war business is being carried out. We refuse to leave special defense and end up waiting in the hummingbird room for news. Making knots, making knots, no word, making knots, tick-tock. This is a clock. Do not think of Gale, do not think of Peta. Making knots. No, we do not want any dinner. Fingers raw and bleeding... Finnick finally gives up and assumes the hunch position he took in the arena when the Jabberjays attacked. I perfect my miniature noose. The words of the hanging tree replay in my head. Gale and Peta. Peta and Gale. Did you... Did you love Annie right away, Finnick? I ask. No. A long time passes before he adds, She crept up on me. I search my heart, but at the moment the only person I can feel creeping up on me is snow. It must be midnight. It must be tomorrow when Hamish pushes open the door. They're back! We're wanted in the hospital! My mouth opens with a flood of questions that he cuts off with, That's all I know! I want to run, but Finnick's acting so strange as if he's lost the ability to move, so I take his hand and lead him like a small child. Through special defense, into the elevator that goes this way and that, and then to the hospital wing. The place is in an uproar, with doctors shouting orders and the wounded being wheeled through the halls on their beds. We are sideswiped by a gurney bearing an unconscious, emaciated young woman with a shaved head. Her flesh shows bruises and oozing scabs. Joanna Mason who actually knew rebel secrets, at least the one about me. And this is how she paid for it. Through a doorway, I catch a glimpse of Gale, stripped to the waist, perspiration streaming down his face as a doctor removes something from under his shoulder blade with a long pair of tweezers. 
wounded but alive. I call his name, start toward him until a nurse pushes me back and shuts me out. Finnick! Something between a shriek and a cry of joy. A lovely, if somewhat bedraggled young woman, dark tangled hair, sea green eyes, runs toward us in nothing but a sheet. And suddenly it's as if there's no one in the world but these two, crashing through space to reach each other. They collide, enfold, lose their balance, and slam against a wall where they stay, clinging into one being, indivisible. A pang of jealousy hits me. Not for either Finnick or Annie, but for their certainty. No one seeing them can doubt their love. Boggs, looking a little worse for wear, but uninjured, finds Hamish in me. We got them all out. Except Anabaria. But since she's from two, we doubt she's being held anyway. Peter's at the end of the hall. The effects of the gas are just wearing off. You should be there when he wakes. Peter. Alive and well. Maybe not well, but alive and here, away from snow, safe, here, with me. In a minute, I can touch him, see his smile, hear his laugh. Hamish is grinning at me. Come on, then, he says. I'm lightheaded with giddiness. What will I say? Who cares what I say? Peta will be ecstatic no matter what I do. He'll probably be kissing me anyway. I wonder if it will feel like those last kisses on the beach in the arena, the ones I haven't dared to let myself consider until this moment. Peter is awake already, sitting on the side of the bed, looking bewildered as a trio of doctors reassure him, flash lights in his eyes, check his pulse. I'm disappointed that mine was not the first face he saw when he woke, but he sees it now. His features register disbelief and something more intense I can't quite place. Desire? Desperation? Surely both, for he sweeps the doctors aside, leaps to his feet, and moves toward me. I run to meet him. My arms extended to embrace him. His hands are reaching for me, too, to caress my face, I think. My lips are just forming his name when his fingers lock around my throat. And that is the end of our third and final chapter of the day. Yes, indeed, Miss Messica, that last word did change everything. Y'all, do not forget, the vote has begun. It will continue throughout this part. There are three parts to each book, and we are currently in part two. Throughout part two, we're going to be doing the vote over in Discord for our next series. Do not forget about this. I just want to make sure to let people know before they start to sidle on out of here. Linktree slash sidecar stories. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That is the link to follow, and that is the link to share. My good people. Spider Arthur says, What? 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 Sapphire Lady says, My mouth just hit the floor. Orly Rose says, Riot! 
And Hogwarts Hippie says, well, this is a terrible cliffhanger. And yes, indeed it is. I was actually, I've been looking through and it's so wild the way that some of these things work out. Um, it must be intentional, right? Because the absolute, the absolute buck wildest hangovers, hangovers, excuse me? Cliffhangers come uh, on our schedule of every three chapters. That is precisely the schedule of the absolutely most terrible cliffhangers. But here we are. Here we are, my good people. Thank you so very much for joining me tonight. Uh, my name is Sam. This is A Sidecar Stories. And um, I will say, although yesterday's episode wasn't my favorite, we have got a, another stream going on every single week um, uh, in which the week before Yesterday was a fantastic one. We've had some excellent guests on there, including Mr. Halfbit uh, and uh, Chaotic Darby. Some great folks over there and uh, following some really fun storylines. We're actually next week, uh, excuse me, not next week, but next stream, because I'm not going to be streaming next week. That's the other bit of update. Um, I'm not going to be streaming next week uh, because I'm going to be doing a little bit of traveling. Uh, and then the week after that, I should be totally back on my new schedule or on my regular schedule. Um, but uh, for our next session of, uh, of the Chat Plays campaign of Night School at Vesperal Academy, we're actually going to be playing a, an RPG that I wrote. Um, I wrote this system, and uh, yes, it's going to be two long weeks, I'm sorry. Um, I, I can virtually guarantee I won't have time, but if I've got time for like a no-prep stream, something like getting started in Oblivion or Elder Scroll, uh, excuse me, Elder Scrolls Oblivion or Skyrim, um, I'm, I may boot up one of those, but like I said, I can virtually guarantee I will not have time. Uh, but... I've got those. We talked about it a little bit in the Discord, so I might boot up one of those as like a, a late night stream because they're fun, they're cool, and uh, I I can't do many like improvisational streams because almost all the streams that I do, whether it's this stuff, you know, like the, the reading or the RPG stuff, that definitely takes prep. But then like, you know, even stuff like side karaoke takes a little bit of prep just to like make sure that my voice is prepped for it for the day. Uh, things like... Um, uh, the the table reads those take quite a bit of prep frankly um, just because I don't have a solid workflow for them yet so just about everything I do here takes a decent bit of prep unlike most streamers uh, and so I just wanted something that I could launch into and just you know every every once in a while just get into it a little bit because it doesn't require any prep it'll probably be a late night stream kind of deal all right all right uh, I would say today might have been one of the most intense. Uh, uh, streams, most intense episodes of these books. Very intense. And it's one of these things that, that just can't... You can't do with low introduction, right? This, this we're, we're feeling some things right now that cannot possibly be brought on by, uh, by rushing through. We have to spend a lot of time with these characters before we feel this way about them. Um, and... Uh, yeah, we're only in part two of this book, as as Mortal points out here. Um, this is part two, The Attack, and we've just read the first three chapters of part two. There are six chapters remaining in part two, and uh, don't forget to vote during that time, because when part two ends, I might give it, like, through that weekend, but after that, the vote is over. I see we have a couple of hot leaders in there right now, but I'm not going to talk about the vote. I'm, I'm going to try not to sway it in any way. Um, I've got a f I've got tons on there that have, were, of course, suggested by all of y'all. But I've also got a few on there that are like, you know what? No one else suggested this, but uh, 
I really like this series, um, and I think that y'all would too. And so, um, I've gone ahead and uh, I've put a few extras on there. Put a few extras that some of y'all might not recognize, and if you do, tally-ho, and congratulations to you. Uh, but there were also a couple. Oh, by the way, there's one that's not on there because I've already decided I'm going to do it, um, and that is Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Uh, I, I will be reading that one. That's why it's not on the vote, because I already intend to read that one. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, once I sort of get my hands on it, I'm gonna have to decide when I'm going to read it. Um, if it's, if it's not a huge one, I will probably just read it immediately after this book, I suppose? I don't know precisely. It does seem like it would make the most sense to sort of keep it, keep it temporally relevant to this one. Um, uh, but if it's a super long one, then I might, uh, I might postpone it for another time. But I do already intend to read Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which, as some of y'all may know, is a prequel to the Hunger Games series, because I've heard it's very interesting. There we go. <laughs> Party of Spade? Um, I would say... I would say... Mm, I mean, I'll allow it. I will allow it, Proteus Spade. Yes. Yes, I will. <laughs> I'm trying to trying to think of the permutations here, how this might pan out. But yeah, I suppose I will. Um, yeah, Hogwarts Hippie, there are quite a few suggestions that even I had never heard of. And I've been doing this for a few years at this point. Uh, and so, yeah, it, you know, even the ones that didn't end up on the list um, for any of the many reasons, some of which I've listed here on stream, some of which are listed in the vote channel itself up at the top there. Um, uh, there, are, there are quite a few series that I had never heard of before. Uh, so I'm, I'm thankful for all of them, even if they didn't necessarily all end up in the vote. 